Let's pray. Father, we, we don't know what we're doing. That, that is true. So thankful that you do. Um, Lord, this was a new season for, for all of us, for this church, for our family. And you have uh, strengthened us. And you've given us uh, an opportunity in this congregation to see other leaders emerge and uh, to spread their wings a little bit and to have an opportunity to preach and teach and counsel and lead. And we are so thankful, Lord. We believe this church has been strengthened. And I pray uh, now that you'd help me to be uh, uh, just another step in that process as we take up a, a new adventure in uh, the pulpit this morning. Lord, I, I sincerely need your help. I was wonderfully reminded running on the trail yesterday that it is not what I've prepared that's going to be so very helpful to these people. It's going to be what you do with your word as it leaves my mouth and hits other people's ears. That will be what is helpful. So please come now, Holy Spirit. Shine a spotlight on Jesus Christ. We pray that you would uh, take these truths in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians and make them dance and live in our lives. Help us to understand and help us to apply what we are understanding for the sake of our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus and for the sake of our vision, our 2020 vision into the days ahead. Come now, we pray, and lead us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we asked about our family. Uh, so, how's your summer going? Right? Last time I stood in this pulpit to unfold the Scriptures was Sunday, April 26th, if you recall. In some ways, that seems like a lifetime ago to me, in some ways. These last three months have brought sweeping changes into our culture and into our nation and really our world. I don't even know where to start uh, from the Supreme Court decision that was handed down regarding so-called same-sex marriage to the national celebration and eager embrace of transgenderism that our culture is walking through this summer, from a controversial international nuclear deal with Iran to, on the home front here, remarkable resurgence of the pro-life movement in view of the systematic implosion of Planned Parenthood. I'm not sure what else to call that. From the heartbreaking, racially motivated slaying of nine worshipers at a prayer meeting in South Carolina to the religiously motivated terrorist activity of radical Islam in two Tennessee military facilities. Doesn't it feel that we're living in the midst of a nation, in the midst of a world that is careening off the tracks and spinning wildly out of control? As one dear Christian brother who texted me a few weeks back put it, these past few months I've never felt more like an alien 
I pray and hope that the Lord Jesus will return soon. And it's my hope that over these next several weeks as a church, we're going to see just how spot on that observation is. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So in the face of a cascade of change in our cultural landscape, I think there are two opposite errors, two practical opposite errors that we are wise to guard our hearts against. One error is the error as we look around and we feel what's happening around us, we give in to sinful anxiety. It's the instinct of the, the flesh that so easily besets us. Sinful anxiety, uh, excessive worry, unholy apprehension, and uneasy angst about it all. Sinful anxiety is one error. The other error, the opposite error, is sinful apathy. And I see that growing too in my heart as well as in the hearts of others around me. Apathy, indifference, lethargy, just a general sense that making any effort whatsoever to kind of stem the tide of cultural decay around us, it would just be, it would be about as effective as just shuffling deck chairs around the Titanic. I mean, this thing is going down anyway, right? So anxiety on the one hand, apathy on the other. These are opposite errors and they are equally deadly detours for a Christian. And they are capable, if we lean into either one unreservedly, they are capable of derailing us on our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ. So, what's the answer? What's the solution? Wherever you are right now on the spectrum from anxiety to apathy, one sure fire cure is better biblical eschatology. I'll say that again. Wherever you are right now, on the spectrum from anxiety to apathy, one surefire cure is better biblical eschatology. And you say, okay, what's that? And I'm glad you asked. Eschatology literally means end time study. End time study. Another way to put it is simply this. Eschatology is what the Bible says about the future. What the Bible says about the future. You say, is that important? And the answer, of course, is yes, if for no other reason than the first four words in that definition. What the Bible says. What the Bible says. The Bible is God speaking. The Bible is God's actual verbal communication to us in written form. The Bible is God speaking. And when God speaks, we are wise. We aren't just wise. We are obliged to listen. Now, the Bible tackles all kinds of topics, doesn't it? From a 10,000-foot level, if you think about areas of uh, doctrine that we can understand and embrace, the Bible touches on God, Christ, Spirit, man, sin, salvation, the church, mission, all kinds of things, routinely. And we ought to give ear to all the content of Holy Scripture, all that God has done, 
And yet, a surprisingly high percentage of this book deals with that which God has not yet done. Yes, the Scriptures are an account of on God's watch what has come to pass, but the Scriptures are also an account of on God's watch what is yet to come. And eschatology, end-time study, what the Bible says about the future, it brings us into consideration of the topic that Seth mentioned a few moments ago, which is biblical prophecy. And you say, well, what's, what's that? Best definition I ever heard of biblical prophecy is just this. Biblical prophecy is history written in advance. I love that. Biblical prophecy is history written in advance. Dr. Stephen Roy, uh, who grew up in Edina here, he was one of my first professors at Trinity, uh, actually tallied the number of predictive prophecies in Holy Scripture. Do you know how many predictive prophecies are found in the pages from the Old Testament to the New? Buckle your seatbelt. 4,017. 4,017 predictive prophecies in the Bible. That is over one quarter of the content of Holy Scripture. 27% to be precise. 27% of this book deals with predictive prophecy, what God says about the future. When God speaks, we ought to listen. And when God speaks that often about a particular subject, namely prophecy, history written in advance, we should be especially interested. Now granted, I've not made the case yet exactly how eschatology, what the Bible says about the future, serves you on that practical spectrum from anxiety to apathy. But I'll tell you this. Come with us these next six weeks in 2 Thessalonians. And you'll have the answer. Today we begin a brand new sermon series as a church, and it's entitled Concerning the Coming of Our Lord. We draw that phrase right from Paul in chapter 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord, a study of Second Thessalonians, and trusting you have your Bibles open, or at least open to a red Bible on page 989, let's get started. A little bit of background on this letter before we take a look at three closing uh, introduction-oriented applications for us. First question, who wrote this letter? Verse 1 answers that question with three names, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. The Apostle Paul, whose name is attached to a dozen other New Testament letters as well, is the first name. Silvanus is a Roman name, though we know him better by his Jewish name, Silas. Does that ring a bell? Paul and Silas. Missionary companions. And then there's Timothy, beloved apostolic associate closely connected with both the ministry of Paul and Silvanus or, or Silas. So Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy wrote this. And really, Paul was the, the penman. One reason we know that is if you were to fast forward ahead to the end of the book, take a look at 
2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17. There's, n- there's no verse like it in the rest of the Bible. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write, which so baffles me that sometimes there are people that wonder whether or not Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians. I'm just going, he wrote it. Paul wrote it, and he had these two brothers with him who uh, perhaps contributed as well, but Paul is considered the author. Well, when and where was the letter written? So date and, and location. We know from the tail end of Acts chapter 15 that Paul and Silas connected together just prior to the launch of Paul's second missionary journey. And then the early verses of Acts 16 detail how Timothy came to join them. And then through, no other way to put it, just intense hardship and severe persecution, they find themselves for the first time in the Aegean seaport of Thessalonica. Uh, They didn't spend long there. They couldn't. They were forced out. But it was enough time to preach the gospel and to see a fledgling church take root. And that's the church in Thessalonica. Acts 17 tells the story, if you would want to take a look at that a little bit later. Um, But by the time we get to Acts chapter 18, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are in Corinth just after having left, left Athens. And I think it's there, most folks think it's there in Corinth where both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are likely written. And probably no more within three months of each other. 1st Thessalonians came along and then a season later some issues and problems arose and so Paul shot back a second letter to the church in Thessalonica and that's the one we're studying. So in terms of a date, we may be looking at A.D. 50 to 51. Both letters penned by Paul from Corinth. They are his earliest epistles, which make them chronologically the first two documents written in the New Testament. So why did Paul feel compelled to write to these folks? Twice. Let's talk about the destination of Thessalonica for a moment. Thessalonica was at one time a premier city. I wouldn't say the premier city, but a premier city, top-tier city in the Roman Empire. Thessalonica was located in the province of Macedonia, not to be confused with the nation of Macedonia today, but a larger region, a province, a key commercial center north of the Mediterranean along, along the Aegean Sea. Not only did this city have outstanding access to the central waterways of uh, ancient Rome, namely the Aegean and the Mediterranean, but it's also true that the most sprawling east-west highway in the world at the time ran right beside Thessalonica. And what this means, of course, is that if the gospel could take root in Thessalonica, the message of Jesus could literally crisscross sea and land as it never had before. And that is precisely what happened. Proof positive this, of this is offered in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 4, where Paul writes, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And then dropping down to verse 7, 
so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, which would have included Philippi and some other areas as well, all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, which would have included Corinth and some other areas. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith has gone forth everywhere. Is that an overstatement? No. No, people knew about the church in Thessalonica. It was a strategic location. And the church in Thessalonica was young, but it was a powerful body of faithful believers. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, our present letter says, it is written to the church of the Thessalonians in, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that explains the power. Verse 1 into verse 2. At the end of the day, it's not geographic location that makes a church great. It is not wealth or education or even large numbers that's the decisive issue for a church's prevailing influence in the kingdom. Rather, it is simply the fact that a true church is a gathering of people, to borrow the language of verse 1, in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The late Dr. John Walverd wonderfully observed, no other religion says this. People are never said to be in Buddha or in Confucius or in Allah or Muhammad, yet believers are in vital union with Christ. My daughter has been overwhelmed with this doctrine over this summer. She'll be delighted to walk you through it. Union with Christ. So make no mistake, we are a modest church. We are no great shakes. Does that surprise anyone? No. However, we are a church in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that changes everything. We'll learn more about the church in Thessalonica in the weeks to come. There's a whole lot more interesting, juicy things that we can draw out that'll help with the explanation and application of these chapters. But the most important reality we can possibly know about them is one that we already share with them. Union with God in Christ. Are you in Christ this morning? Are you safe within the walls of the gospel? We are a gospel-centered church family facing the cross and the empty tomb all of our days. All of us who profess faith in Christ and have turned from our sins have found that we have been drawn into a life-giving, vital union with Jesus Christ. Do you know Him? I invite you to put your faith in this Jesus today. Now, a brief word about the structure of this letter and then on to application. The outline for the next six weeks falls into two simple parts. End-time beliefs and end-time behavior. The first part of this letter deals in large measure with eschatology, with what the Bible says about the future, with end-time beliefs. 
So over the next three weeks, we will study what the Bible says about the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We will tackle matters related to the day of the Lord, to the rapture, to the tribulation, to the man of lawlessness himself, an individual that goes under the name of the Antichrist in the Bible. The Scriptures are not shy in tackling these matters, and we will not be timid in handling them. However, one thing we will most certainly not do is deal with them divorced from, cut loose from application to daily life. We will refuse to do that because the Bible refuses to do that. The Scriptures routinely help its readers to understand the days ahead, but they always do so with a view to helping us live faithfully in the day that we're in. Does that make sense? These are challenging and weighty times in which we are living. There were so many times I wanted to shoot out a a pastoral email or just check in with folks to see how they were doing this past summer. Things are spinning fast around us. So may we approach these times as the sons of Issachar did in 1 Chronicles 12.32 who had an understanding of the times to know what God's people ought to do. That's why we study end times. That's why we study end time beliefs. We study end time beliefs because it has everything to do with now time behavior. And wherever you are right now on the spectrum from anxiety to apathy, one surefire cure is is better biblical eschatology. Now, in closing, what I'd like to do by way of application is just read verses 3 and 4. And with all of us here kind of looking over the shoulder of the inspired apostle, I'd like to offer three reasons to thank God for Mount Evangelical Free Church. Three reasons to thank God for Mount Free Church. Let's take a look at verses 3 and 4. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves Boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Paul thanked God for the Thessalonian church for at least three reasons. And I hope that we'll see by way of application for us, there are three reasons that each of us can thank God for Mount Evangelical Free Church. So thank God for our church when you see, number one, faith growing. Thank God when you see faith growing. Look with me once more at the first half of verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. Now, I, I wish this weren't exceptional. It ought not to be unusual but it oftentimes is. Many professing Christians 
could not honestly say when they look at their church that they see the faith of its members growing abundantly. Now, when you see it, if you see it, you need to know precisely who to thank for it. If you see a church full of faith, just wind in their sails and ready to believe God's Word and do a belly flop on the gospel and live wild, spirit-filled lives of abandon for Christ, when you see that, don't make the mistake of thanking the church or its leaders. Thank God. Why? Because faith is the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8. And when you see a church whose faith is growing abundantly, thank God, because faith is not native to us. It is not. Faith does not come from us. But we do know where it comes from. Romans 10.17 plainly says where faith comes from. Faith comes from hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ, by hearing the gospel. In fact, my friend John Owen said to me yesterday, diligent attendance unto the word of the gospel is indispensably necessary unto the preservation and perseverance in the profession of it. Diligent attendance to the work of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the gospel, by the word of Christ. Do you genuinely, genuinely, don't nod your head if you don't, but do you genuinely thank God for Mount Evangelical Free Church? I do. I do. I thank God for Mount Free Church, but not in some vague, fuzzy, amorphous way. No, I thank God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. You know how I know? The 2020 vision. That's how I know. Five years from today, we will have planted our first church. That takes faith. Five years from today, we will have established the Harbor Center for Biblical Counseling with five certified counselors serving this community free of charge for the love of of the gospel. Five years from today, that takes faith. Five years from today, we will have seen 50 newly baptized believers. I am praying as never before for people up and down my street and in my web of relationships. Had a number, I don't know about you how your summer was, a number of unexpected opportunities to talk about Jesus with guys that I pray for routinely, regularly. That takes faith. Guess what, friends? Your faith is growing abundantly. Thank God for the church when you see faith growing. Second point of application. Thank God for Mount Evangelical Free Church when you see love increasing. Thank God for the church when you see love increasing. Once again, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to think... Give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love, listen to this statement, of every one of you for one another is increasing. 
Once again, much the same as faith, but only more so. Faith is one thing. Love is costlier than faith. Love is what faith produces at best result. And I simply wish it weren't the case that love, real love, increasing in the local church was rare, but it is. And when you see it, uncommon and exceptional as it is, you need to know where to assign credit. Paul thanks God. Why? Well, I want to show you why. Because in the previous letter, 1 Thessalonians, he specifically asked God for it. Now, this is cool. You always wonder, you're praying for things and you think, how, and you're going after God's heart on a particular topic. And then you start thinking, how long is it going to be before he answers this? You know what? It took three months for Paul to have tangible evidence of the prayer he prayed in 1 Thessalonians 3.12. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, Paul prays, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. You ever pray that? It's not a flimsy, namby-pamby kind of prayer. Love is bloody. Love is hard. Love is the reverse of selfishness, so it's the reverse of easy. Love. He prays that they would die for one another. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. That's the request in 1 Thessalonians 3.12. And here in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, we see the result of the request. Verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, because the love of one of you for one another is increasing. You see that? God did that. They didn't do that. God did that. Paul asked, and God made their love for one another increase. So the question is, is is God doing that among us in our church? Do you know the answer to that question? Yes. Yes. Yes, He is. You know how I know? The Mount Evangelical Free Church Membership Covenant. That's how I know. Our covenant with one another is an oath-bound commitment in love. My daughter will often ask me the question, as seven-year-old girls do, Daddy, do you promise? Do you promise? She wants me to throw it out there routinely throughout the day. Do you promise? And most of the time I tell her, no, unless she asks me about two things. Do you promise to love mommy until you take your last breath? Answer, I promise. Secondly, do you promise to love Mount Evangelical Free Church in that way? Answer, I promise. But I'm not throwing out that covenant for any other situation. We are wise not to. Compared to the expectations of many churches for their people, which is next to nil, by the way. I've done some traveling this summer. We expect a huge commitment from our covenant members. It doesn't feel like a very high bar to me, but comparatively, it is a high bar. That's one thing I've learned. We set the bar high. We aim to hold one another accountable for real love. And you know what's amazing? That role, that role of covenant members is increasing. Who do we thank for that? 
not ourselves. Thank God. Love is a fruit of God the Holy Spirit. I have prayed regularly over sabbatical for an increase of that love and in order to thank God for that love. I could tell you almost precisely the place on the Dakota Trail where I end up praying for our our covenant vision of, of 40 new covenant members by 2020. It's right about uh, where uh, King's Road is in Spring Park. Right about there, I'm praying for covenant members. Thank God for the church when you see tangible evidence of that love increasing. Now granted, if you just sign a covenant and file it away and it's one more document, yeah, it's nothing spectacular. Anybody can sign their name to something. But when you see people stepping up to the plate to live out that commitment, we thank God for that. Final application point, briefly. Thank God for Mount Evangelical Free Church when you see afflictions enduring. Thank God for Mount Evangelical Free Church. Thank God for the church when you see afflictions enduring. One more time, let's look at this uh, time, verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast. He changes his language. He gets even stronger. We boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Why does Paul not just thank God, but boast about the church in Thessalonica to other churches that he is in contact with? For their faith and their steadfastness and all their persecutions. Why? Because in 1 Thessalonians, Paul told them it was God's design for them. He told them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. Same language. Listen to this. Let no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as has come to pass and just as you know. Let no one be moved by persecution and affliction. Why? Because God destines us for them. Do you believe that the church in America will actually be exempt from them? 2015 is a new year. Just in case you weren't sensing it, The conditions in our culture and throughout our nation are becoming increasingly inhospitable and may soon prove to be downright hostile sooner than we are bargaining for to authentic biblical Christianity. The wind is picking up. Do you feel it? It's getting chillier. Imagine the gospel arriving to the shores of our nation 400-some years ago. Imagine that as springtime. 
And then the cultural Christendom, the canopy of protection through laws and just a general kind of we all believe in God and love Jesus in this nation sort of atmosphere that pervaded from 1776 to about the last five years or so. That was summertime. Guess where we are right now? It's Indian summer. It's the chill of an early fall. It's getting cooler. Cultural Christianity is gone. And we may be headed, although no one knows, we may be headed for a winter of affliction and persecution. And when we do, let's remember 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Eschatology. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a, as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a, as a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time, it is time for judgment to begin. At the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will, be, uh, will uh, become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, underline, double underline, triple underline, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Thank God for the church when you see not just afflictions, those are coming, afflictions enduring, bearing up because Jesus is worth it. Wherever you are right now on the spectrum from anxiety to apathy, one surefire cure, I guarantee it, is better biblical eschatology. As we approach the home stretch of our summer together, 2 Thessalonians will be our guide, and we'll get a crash course from the inspired Apostle Paul regarding end-time beliefs and end-time behavior. But today, this week, as we head out into our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus, as we walk steadily toward that 2020 vision, let's thank God Almighty for Mount Evangelical Free Church. Thank God as you see faith growing, love increasing, and afflictions enduring. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, indeed, what truly matters is what you do with the Word of God in between lips and ears. I've always believed that. I believe that uniquely this morning. I pray that you will take the seed of the Word of God and press it down deeply into the soil of the hearts of the men and women and boys and girls of this congregation. 
We thank you, God, for our church. We thank you because we do see genuine evidence of faith growing. We see love increasing. And I believe that while there will, will be casualties in this church and certainly in other churches, I believe that by and large we will see steady as oak enduring of affliction and persecution in the days ahead. I believe that. So would you come as we enter a, another season of ministry together? Lord, thank you for the gift of rest. Thank you for this church. They must have increasing faith if they let me go away for three months. <laughs> I'm so glad to be back. Lord, help us to grow in our grasp of what you say in Second Thessalonians. And may we come to understand and treasure these truths as never before and live lives of mission to be and make disciples of Jesus because of them. In the mighty and matchless name of King Jesus, we pray. And everyone agreed and said, Amen.